Welcome back to Your Ag Empire, where we roll up our sleeves, dig in the dirt, and uncover the secret to success in the world of agriculture. I'm your host, Jonathan Harrelson, a Texas farmer and rancher, farm risk consultant, and commodity coach. New episodes drop on Wednesdays on Spotify, Apple, and YouTube, and we'd be honored to have you as a subscriber. We have another fantastic podcast where we meet with Chris Fryer, who established his career as a successful elevator manager and grain merchandiser. Throughout his career, he spent time with cooperatives, corporate grain elevators, and mills. And on this episode, Chris shares how he got his start in grain merchandising. We tackle three areas where money is being made, if work-life balance is attainable, and how networking is the solid foundation of any career. Chris, welcome to the show. What are you doing today? Chris, how did you uh, get into this whole, you know, grain merchandising origination type career? I mean, how how does a guy wake up and say, this is the path I'm going? Well, I guess for me, it's been pretty simple. Um, I've always loved agriculture since I've been a small kid. You know, look forward every summer to going to central Kansas, spending time on the grandparents' farm. And, uh, you know, from there, I was pretty good with numbers. And so it's kind of... Kind of got me to where I'm at today. I like, uh, you know, investing stocks and stuff like that. The mix between agriculture and trade and grain just kind of uh, went hand in hand. Gotcha. Where where is uh, this career path taking you guys? Um, so I grew up in Houston, Texas, a long ways away from agriculture. Um, grew up there, like I said, went to central Kansas every summer to my grandparents' farm. Uh, spent a lot of time up there. Ended up going to Oklahoma State. Got my bachelor's and master's there. And uh, coming out of college, I went to uh, North Dakota and uh, worked for Gavilon. I was a trainee up there for 11 months, and then I took over managing a grain elevator in Valley City, North Dakota, for two years. Um, you know, enjoyed my time up there in North Dakota. It was definitely different than uh, what I was used to growing up in Houston and whatnot down south. Uh, opportunity came with Gavilon to move down to Wichita Falls in 2011. So I moved down there in 2011 and worked for them for a couple more years. Uh, worked for a feed mill in North Texas, and then I ended up moving to uh, the Enid area in 2018. Um, I was a general manager at a co-op out in Helena, Oklahoma, for a year before I took a different job managing a co-op in Manchester, Oklahoma for three years. And um, in spring of 2022, I became a grain merchandiser for Comark Equity Alliance. Gotcha. So. You, you've definitely traveled around. You've kind of seen, is it different uh, grain origination, like say in Wichita Falls versus North Dakota or, or all in all is the business the same? No, it is drastically different. I mean, North Dakota is known for having uh, one of the states with the most on-farm grain storage. So up there, I was sitting there running 600,000 bushel shuttle loader that uh, you were trying to run three different commodities through and a bunch of on-farm storage. You're competing with ethanol plants and it was a go, go, go all year round trying to hammer on the farmers, bring in bushels. Um, Wichita Falls was more of a, they sell at harvest time and what what hits the elevator is what they sell. There's not much on-farm storage there. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, wheat, wheat and wheat pasture, cattle grazing and stuff like that. So a completely different deal. Um, you get up here to where I'm at, North Central Oklahoma, you get back to more corn and beans and milo. Obviously, wheat's still the main crop, but uh, definitely less on-farm storage up here as well. There's there's going to be more up here, but yeah, definitely varied from where I've been. The technology up there in North Dakota, they were them guys were on the cutting edge of everything up there. And uh, the on-farm storage, like I said, they would rival with a lot of the co-ops and elevators here in North Texas, all the way through North Central Oklahoma. So pretty Pretty expansive area up there. Let's uh, let's dive right into some questions here. So, Chris, can farmers and ranchers negotiate contracts? And and what I mean by this is, you know, everybody talks at the coffee shop, and and we hear that you know 
your elevator's bringing, let's just say corn's five bucks today. But that was what somebody heard, you know, two weeks ago. Uh, is it is it worthwhile for farmers and ranchers to maintain those those relationships and check with you on a weekly basis? I mean, how do those basis shifts? I know that as as time has gone on, I've I've noticed that every week basis could change. Uh, you know, from your perspective, what what should farmers and ranchers be doing to be proactive in grain? I definitely market? think that they should be having those conversations. I mean, it's all. The more I've been in this business, it's more about communication and more about networking and, and keeping those relationships. So, I mean, it never hurts to ask on those things. Um, sometimes there's more leeway. There's more more ability to push on the bids than other times. But uh, definitely a person should always be asking. And you got to take all the factors into consideration when you're pushing on these bids, right? Just because, um, you know, if you're competing with a, the local co-op versus a shuttle loader in town, you know, what is the, are you going to be able to keep your combines rolling and um, what are the discounts you're be getting at one place versus the other? But uh, definitely think that people should be showing an interest in multiple partners as far as where they're trading their grain. Absolutely. And how do you determine the grade of grain? And and the reason I ask this, with all the technology that we have, um, I know even myself, I've I've loaded three different trucks and sent them to three different elevators. And I mean, literally, it's uh, twelve rows down, twelve rows back. Got a truckload out of the same field. And we get three different grades. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's supposed to be a straightforward and fair, simple system. <laughs> uh, there's no there's no straightforward way of doing it. Um, you've seen, I've seen sophisticated things like up at Cargill, Wichita now, I believe they have a, a deal that automatically probes the trucks and uh, grades them without a person even involved in the room, which has been an issue the last few years on our soybeans in North Central Oklahoma because they're having really small uh, soybeans that are sliding through the splits pan and causing a lot of issues. So your splits number is really high, even though you're having a lot of beans in there, but it's not worth it for Cargill to pay a person to be in there and separate out the splits because it's only a penny or two discount. They say they'll just make it up for on the basis and go on down the road um, to where there's other places at some of these country elevators where it's not a very uniform system as far as how they're grading. We try and focus a lot with our elevators that that we uh, work with to try and get a consistent and uniform system as far as how they're grading, you know, the wheat, milo, uh, beans, and corn that we're seeing. So that's definitely a factor to take in, right? So it's not only the three different grade factors you're getting, but you're looking at the discounts from those three different end users as far as what you're getting from them on that. Is is that a, is that one of those situations where like if I let's just say that I've got I've got two different grades from two other elevators and then you're kind of hitting me with some docs over here, but I really want to do business with you. I mean, is there a way that we could third party that thing to kind of give us an opportunity to do business together? For sure. So what we do, um, any grain exchange in town here is great to work with. And there's local grain exchanges are getting to be a little bit fewer and fewer, but you got to find your local grain exchange and uh, go through a third party, like you're saying, to get, get a fair number on it. So, you know, uh, for us, our local grain exchanges, they sit there and grade, you know, shuttle trains we're loading out. They grade a lot of stuff. We're having a lot of questions on the soybeans that are coming in now. Um, there's a lot of them that have a lot of green in the center of them, just trying to get a fair grade as far as what is the green count on the beans and what is not. So um, definitely getting a, a third party like grain exchange involved will take out a lot of the guesswork on that. So I've got another question that I've had a lot of my farmers and ranchers have asked. Um, if we enter into a cash contract, I mean, let's just say, we're looking at at wheat for next year, and I'm going to book fifty thousand bushels with you. It, we rock along, and hell just demolishes, and maybe I only get ten thousand bushels. How come some elevators, they they're like, hey, no big deal, don't worry about it, we'll catch you next year. 
We've got others that are like, hey, for 10 cents, I'll roll you to next year and we'll go ahead and book those 50,000 bushels for next year. And then the 10,000 you hauled in, I'll just apply and we'll, we'll go on about our business. And then others <laughs> are very forcefully, you better get me bushels. Yep. How, how come there's, there's kind of a three different ways of doing business uh, and, and not all elevators are created equal? Yeah, just like you said on the grain factors, right? As far as the grading of the grain, it's the same thing when it comes to rolling contracts. And um, I've seen it multiple different ways. When I was down there at Wichita Falls, uh, that's a notorious area. Uh, you know, Wichita Falls up throughout this Oklahoma there. It's notorious for it's either feast or famine, right? They're either going to make mm-hmm. a 200% crop or they're going to make a 25% crop. There's no middle middle ground there. You have an average over 10 years, but you never hit it. It's either way high or way low. And so it a lot of it depends on the carrier, the inverse in the market as to what people will allow you to do. Um, but it's definitely something you need to be looking into when you go to make contracts on grain, if what the penalties are going to be to roll stuff forward. I know there was the drought up in Canada in 2021. I think there was a lot of people that were forced to uh, deliver bushels like you're talking and the the grain marketing entities were not working with them as far as rolling contracts forward. So I think um, from where I'm at now at Comark Equity Alliance, we try and be a, a, we try and allow as much flexibility as possible on rolling those things forward. Um, but at the end of the day, if we have stuff already marked against our sales, we got to we got to be able to cover those somehow. Obviously, we're a massive uh, network, so we have a lot of other different avenues we can go through on on making that happen. Sure. I, I was curious. Do you guys, um, I mean, do you ever place buy-side hedges uh, as an elevator? Yeah, when we, if we get short of the market. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was just I was just trying to say like uh, like if you know you're going to get 200,000 bushels, uh, well, I'd say like your 10-year average, let's just say uh, of, of wheat. Um, are you out here actively playing the market when you see us at a really low, uh, you know, and kind of protecting against oh, prices rallying against you? I would not say we're speculatively uh, trading futures markets. What we would be doing is getting short on the cash or the basis side of things for the future and rolling on from there. Just like going into corn harvest this year, right? The basis was pretty strong, West Texas, Southwest Kansas, and Springdale, Arkansas markets. So we were getting mm-hmm. short basis side of that. So we're more basis traders as opposed to speculative futures traders at this point in time. So okay. when I was working at Gavilon, right, they had a whole division that was set up on speculative trading side, right? I was not, I'm not involved in that. I guess my whole career, I've been a basis trader is more what I do as opposed to the, the future side of it. Sure. Give us a rundown. Everybody wants to know, like, how do you make your money as an elevator? Is it mainly on renting the space or are there other avenues? Give us kind of a rundown on that model. Right. So the two main ways of doing it are mixing and blending at the elevator level. So taking in, like you're saying, if you're taking in some number three grade Milo and mixing it with some number one grade Milo to uh, send out number twos on a train. Um, and the other ways, um, mainly just basis trading as far as taking it in there, um, storing it and then trading out of the basis. So if there's a carry in the market is hugely beneficial to a network like ours. Um, carrying crops forward right now, or you're seeing more of a carry come back into the bean and corn market, right? But as far sure. as wheat markets, it's barely above interest with the higher interest rates and uh, not very much carry in the Kansas City wheat right now. We're struggling to make too much money on carrying crops forward. So that's kind of telling us to go ahead and keep liquidating our wheat positions as soon as we're owning it from the farmers. So basically between capture and carry, um, trading basis, and then the mix and blending is kind of the three areas where we're making money. Gotcha. I, this year has been kind of an interesting year where 
I've noticed a lot of elevators with large wheat inventories, especially down here, like Fort Worth area, and they cannot get those end users to go ahead and take delivery, which I'm kind of wondering if a lot of that's not based on the high interest rates, if they're kind of forcing the hand and letting the, let the elevator foot the bill on the seven, eight, 9% interest. Yeah. No, the interest game has become a huge factor uh, here recently for us. We've, we were having some carry corn positions there for a while that just became unlucrative because the carry was not large enough in the futures market to outpace that interest. And it forced it um, forced us to have to start liquidating positions quicker and quicker. Now, that's an interesting that you bring that up on the wheat market, right? So in Texas, you guys had a good wheat crop, right? And that's been pretty pluggy on the elevators down there. We had been shipping trains from our North Central Oklahoma train loader down to uh, Fort Worth, Texas for the mills down there, but that's been pretty well cut off. So you're seeing a pretty big shift from bushels from North Central Oklahoma down through Southwest Oklahoma that normally went south. You're seeing a lot of that stuff flow north these days as opposed to flowing south. It's either standing close to home to the mills here in Enid area, Oklahoma, or flown on up to Wichita and Arc City, Kansas as opposed to flowing south, which has been, it's a pretty big shift from where we were at the last couple of years. Typically that grain flows south a lot easier than it flows north. And that's all just because the the bigger crop down there in Texas versus a smaller wheat crop up here in Oklahoma and Kansas. You know, Chris, something that I thought was very interesting two weeks ago, I, I was talking to a grain elevator operator and he, uh, he said they were shipping train loads from Texas to California uh, because of the short wheat crop in Montana. And they said that was the first time they've ever done that coming out of Texas. Where, where were they at in Texas? Texas Panhandle, um, I'm assuming? Fort Worth. Oh, out of Fort Worth, they were loading singles, I'm guessing, and going out to the mills in California. That's, that's pretty deep to dive because of our train loader there in North Central Oklahoma. We struggled to hit the California markets just because we're so far east, but that must be something really specific they're looking for out of Fort Worth and if it's, if it's going out that far. Now, I mean, there is a lot of grain from the Texas Panhandle wheat uh, from the Texas Panhandle and from, you know, Northwest Kansas area getting loaded on singles and heading out to California too, as opposed to flowing east. So sure. they're having to replace that from further and further east. So that's interesting. Yeah. I just, I thought that was something neat. And I'm just where this grain flows. I mean, we spend all year growing it and then it's kind of yeah. interesting where it ends up, you know. Typically, the Texas Gulf is your number one liquid mm-hmm. market for trading wheat. And obviously, the exports have been terrible this year as far as hard rate when a wheat goes. So now that's kind of made your Saginaw Fort Worth area the epicenter of this year. And um, I mean, it got so bad right after wheat harvest time that there were boats unloaded at the Texas Gulf and brought into um, the mainland U.S. as far north as Wichita for hard rate of winter wheat because the European wheat that was so abundant, they were able to bring it over on boat, unloaded to Texas and bring it up to the flour mills. So it's just kind Absolutely. of been, been an interesting year. For sure. So you've worked for, you know, the corporate elevators, the, the independent co-ops, and also the the private feed mills. What's the difference, in your opinion, like working for those different entities? And then a follow-up question for you on that is, is one better to do business with than the other? And that may be a hot button question, but I'm just curious. The, the, the second question is, it's all based on the relationship you have at your your individual person, right? So Gavilon by Terra, they were great to work for. They were they were a real good company to work for. The the private family thing definitely had a interesting aspects to it as far as the you know management and whatnot. And then the co-op system, I really believe in the co-op system as far as the farmers having equity into their local co-op and having should be able to get a return out of that their local co-op and it should mean something to their operation but a lot of it just depends on that the network the relationship of that individual elevator whoever you're dealing with corporate family or a, a co-op right it's a lot of it's uh, the management of that 
system right there um, as far as what kind of relationship they want to have with you and, and where it's going to go, right? How, how bad do they want your business? It goes back to relationships. That's, that's our key. The key thing that keeps everything moving. And that's, that goes back to relationships and communication. Yep. No, I agree with that hundred percent. So, I mean, people should definitely be wanting your business and should be working hard to earn your business on a daily basis. Right. I've seen sure. it time again throughout my time here is as places just don't want to hustle for your grain. They don't want to figure out how to quickly unload your trucks. They don't want to stick around on the weekends or after hours. If your grain's too wet, they don't want to work with you. You got to find the people that want to earn your business. Exactly. You know, on our end, I mean, that's kind of tough from the producer side of it. When we're, we're sitting there, uh, we've got combines rolling, we got trucks there, we've got all this staff and we can't go anywhere with it, you know, and yep. it just makes it a tough way to make it move. So what are some of the different contracts that, that like at your co-op at Enid, what do you guys offer as far as for a farmer or rancher that's wanting to contract some wheat or Milo or what have you? What are some variations of contracts that you offer? And uh, if you can kind of give us a little rundown of maybe something that's out there that guys may not know. Okay. So I'm more on the merchandising on the sales side of what we do at our company. I'm not overly involved on the risk management side and the the buying from the producer side, but um I got a decent grasp on it. So we, I mean, we got your basic cash contracts. We got your futures contracts, your basis contracts. They can do any type of contracts with uh, options. So min max or minimum price contracts, um, all those types of things that they can do. Um, we have what they call a JSA select contract, which is a uh, actively managed uh, investment contract where it's one of the groups we work with is trading in and out of futures and options and stuff all the time to try. It's over like a two year or one year period trying to get you the maximum price they can get you. And then the the guys that I work with and the gals, they have uh, brokerage licenses and they can do crop insurance and stuff like that too. So they got a lot of different options as far as what we offer um, on the buy side of things as to what we can do for for a producer. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. And it feels like a good time for us to hear from a sponsor. They're the ones that are helping us uh, make this podcast possible. The Dirt is a monthly membership that includes a weekly commodity-focused email, market update calls, and commodity text alerts. Use podcast for 50% off your membership when you subscribe at youragempire.com forward slash the dirt. Okay, welcome back. With the stress of the markets and dealing with the complexity of relationships, I mean, how do you find the balance in your life uh, when working in this industry? Um, a lot of that, I guess, comes to getting up early in the morning and getting the day started. So I like to go out, get out five in the morning, go for a run or a bike ride or whatever, and kind of get the blood flowing early in the morning. It gives me time by myself to think and kind of get things lined up for the day. Um, that's the best way, I guess, I've found to to deal with the, the upcoming day. So, you know, between having a six-year-old and eight-year-old and everything else we got going on in life, you kind of takes a lot of a lot of energy out of you but i can tell you by nine o'clock i'm ready to go to bed too so just kind of <laughs> get, getting up early and getting the day started is kind of the what works best for me so uh i've got to ask you because I, I mean i think health and fitness of ourself is is important uh, i think like you said it, it does help us clear our mind and, and make better decisions business-wise during the day but when you're in at harvest and you know you're you're running long hours do you still maintain that that working out regimen or do you kind of does yeah. that fall by the wayside? 
no, I still still get up and get after it every morning. So five days a week. Yeah. No, it definitely definitely puts me in the right frame of mind and gets my attitude going the right direction. If I if I don't get that, you can talk to my coworkers. I get a little grumpy and agitated. And stuff. <laughs> I understand that. What are the most significant challenges that uh, that you've faced in your career? I guess managing people, I guess, is one of the the things that I struggle most with. So in my current role, I'm not managing any people, and I've definitely enjoyed since I've stepped out of that uh, aspect of it. But managing people, it seems to be getting to be a tougher and tougher proposition. And I think a person could work, could use a lot of trains themselves. I've tried to read and done trainings. There's been some uh, groups that I'm part of that work on management training, stuff like that. And I believe that stuff helped a lot. I mean, from the flip side of it, I guess sitting in my role that I'm at now where I'm not managing people, you sit there and look at the people that are managing me and, you know, take cues from them, but also have respect for the fact that they're out there sticking their neck out there to manage people and show, like I said, show respect towards what they're doing. So I guess that would be kind of one of the areas that would, one of the bigger challenges for me. Well, I can commend you on that. You know, going from that role of managing people to not, and then having that respect for those that are that are kind of taking that role. I, I mean, I can commend you for that. I think a lot of folks don't take that perspective. It's just, uh, it's kind of interesting. So what is a commonly held belief about your industry or profession that you passionately disagree with? I would say, I guess the current role that I'm in, it would be that co-ops are kind of going by the wayside. And I think that you're seeing in certain parts of the country where that's becoming less and less true. And a lot of it's coming through um, merging of co-ops, but I don't think that's necessarily uh, has to take place for co-ops to become more aggressive and seeking business. So I would think it's kind of like the the old school mentality, right? Of the grandpa always went to the co-op and dad went to the co-op and that's why we go to the co-op. I think the, I think the mentality is changing on the co-op side of things that we want your business and there's a reason we're here. We've got a brick and mortar uh, business in your town and we want to earn your business and keep the doors open and not only keep the doors open, but be a thriving business to where we can return money to you, the producer. Absolutely. You know, I, I've noticed a, a shift in the grain business. It seems like in Texas, even even in Oklahoma, uh, it seemed like every 30 miles we had a little elevator, a little country elevator. I mean, you've probably seen it too. You drive by a lot of these places that haven't been open for years. Maybe they got sold to a family. A family uses a private elevator now. Um, so we're kind of running into that situation where for these co-ops that create an environment, you know, help me do business with you, uh, they're growing yep. and, and yep. they're doing well and, yep. and putting in satellite offices and, and other elevators that are, you know, 60 miles away and, and, and keep expanding. And I, I think that's a great thing because that it's going to get to a point where we can't all just go into the big, large uh, Viterra or Gavilon and sit six, seven, eight hours in line to try to make one load. I mean, that's just efficiency goes out the window. Yeah. And those co-ops are learning to be more efficient too. Um, you're getting semis and whatnot. So they're not having to be in every town. Maybe it's every other town or they're spreading out more. Um, they're realizing where to put a return their investments into certain assets while closing other assets down and stuff like that. So yeah, they're definitely getting more efficient with time. How do you manage the logistics, you know, coordinating between multiple farmers that are all that, you know, they've got six to 10 members on their team trying to get it out but you also got your employees that you're trying to keep the grain flow. How do you wrangle the circus? Basically, 
you got to be really paying attention. So right now I'm managing for the logistics and the merchandising for all of our Oklahoma uh, grain elevators. So there's uh, 10 members, probably 50 grain elevators that I'm overseeing. And when wheat harvest is going on in Oklahoma, it is, it's quite the circus. You know, recently we've been pretty fortunate with the elevators being pretty empty going into harvest um, just because of the lack of carry in the market, like we discussed earlier and high interest rates. So it's been relatively easy to manage, but basically keeping on top of uh, the capacities of the grain elevators and what we need to be doing. That's where a lot of it comes back to our members do um, predictions as far as what they're thinking their wheat take will be, you know, one month, two months, three months before harvest. And then you start preparing, you know, that far ahead of time. Do we need to be selling another train out of Altas? Do we need to be selling another one out of uh, Medford? What do we need to be doing as far as keeping the, the flow going? And then a lot of it is about that networking with truck drivers, right? So I scroll through my phone. I got, you know, 50, 60 different truck people that I talk to that might have one to five trucks each of them uh just trying to keep them organized as to what what the priorities are and then obviously money talks on a lot of the deal if uh if elevators are getting full at one one location and i've been hammering on trucks to get moving if they're not moving well i'm probably not paying enough money for them to get it moved from the one elevator to wherever i'm trying to go with it right so then you got to up your rates and try and get them moving that direction so there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, we're doing a little bit more where we're trying to pick up stuff from Farmer's Fields Direct and go to end user destinations and try and make it more efficient that route too, right? So some of our competition is providing that. So we're trying to keep up with that. So there's just a lot of pieces going on. You just got to be on your phone, on your computer all day, just hammering down on them. That was another question I, I, I wanted to ask you is with a lot of these, you know, the farms are having to get bigger. I mean, they just they just have. It's the nature of the beast. Um, most of them have some sort of on-farm storage. Maybe they can't hold everything, um, but they can hold a substantial amount. Can they work with you, you know, as far as moving that grain from the field to their bins and then going straight to the end user? Maybe they use their own fleet of trucks to haul their own stuff. Could they work with you? So that's a pretty unique relationship, I guess. I don't know that I've ever heard of us hiring out out of the field to haul to their bins and then going on later to the end user. But yeah, I mean, if there's money there, then I'm happy to get involved in it. I guess up in Oklahoma here, I'm not seeing as much on-farm storage. So we're seeing more just directly out of the field to an end user and bypassing the co-op. So it's kind of a give and take though, right? Because we don't want to incentivize too much to build on-farm storage because that would make the asset in town that the co-op owns less relevant. So it's kind of a give and take as to keeping the relevance of that asset for the co-op and as well as servicing the producers. So there's some opportunities like Milo Harvest this year, right? If you were 25 miles away from a, a train loader, um, there wasn't too much point to take it to your local co-op and then us unload it, reload it on another truck and take it to the train loader. Uh, that's where we tried to work with the guys to just go directly to the train loader on our trucks to try and cut out. You cut out the co-op in the middle, but it did save a lot of efficiencies too. So it worked for our members as well as the producers we're working with. Sure. I had talked to one of our uh, managers of the of the elevator, and we had had some we had some corn that was in storage, and I was able to rather than me haul it to him and then him haul it, I was able to haul it with our trucks. We were able to get like twenty cents over, you know, basis from what I had called that same end user, um, but they were able to make a little bit of money in between too, and so it ended up working out for everybody. I was just curious uh, if you were seeing that where. You know, the, that storage could also be a, a tool if you had that relationship, you know, with that farmer or rancher. 
Yep, definitely. I mean, you got to think about it. On-farm storage gives you a lot of flexibility, but you also have that flexibility when you own the grain in your local elevator in town too, right? As long as it's on a storage, you still have title to that grain. So it keeps the options open. Yeah, there's going to be an in and out fee, but those are still numbers you should be calculating and thinking about too. So Chris, when choosing an elevator, I mean, is there a way, uh, I know down here in Texas, there were just several years back, I had some, some farmers that, uh, delivered, uh, I think it was corn. Uh, they had, they had receipts, you know, of all the bushels that were there, they were literally just storing it there. The elevator went bankrupt and the bank locks the doors and guess what? Everything's in receivership. So, um, I think one of those farmers, it took two years to get his money back, um, Another one, I think it was three or four years and nearly, nearly all the way to bankruptcy. So nationwide, how do we prevent, you know, farmers and ranchers from taking on risks that maybe undue risk and, and knowing that they have a good partner on the other end that they're working with? So were the, I guess, were these places federally licensed or state licensed facilities or were the, yeah, they were. Okay. I got you. Well, that's interesting. And then, so they weren't covered at all in the background then as far as, Financially, huh? Okay. Um, man, that's a good question. I guess you just really need to know. That's where I guess the at the co-op <laughs> level, you can go to the annual meeting every year and look over the financials and kind of figure out where they're at on that way. On privately traded companies, it's going to be a little bit tougher to know who you're doing business with. You know, obviously a publicly traded company like ADM, you can look at their financials as well too. But you definitely need to be paying attention to those things and look for warning signs, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it was definitely uh, set a few of those guys back. Uh, yes. You know, they were they were blowing and going and growing their operations. And then, I mean, literally put on hold for a couple of years. And uh, thank goodness they were able to get that stuff settled out. But yeah, no, that'd be terrible. Chris, you, you've got to have a story of a wreck dealing with a farmer or rancher. Um, what was it and could it have been prevented? Yeah, I've had plenty of wrecks with with uh, farmers <laughs> on the on the grain side of things. I've up there in Manchester, there was there we had some couple honorary farmers that would give you a pretty hard time as far as what your your dockage was and your basis level and stuff like that, and they'd get get pretty rough on you as far as beating you up. Obviously, they always bring the stuff into the elevator and complain about it after the fact. They don't want to hit you up beforehand and get you to commit to doing something else uh, beforehand. So, just lots of experiences with that. Um, another wreck that we, last fall we had uh, Milo sold to a, a pig farm here, and we were trying to deliver on that. You don't normally have aflatoxin in Milo, but last year was uh, pretty notorious for having aflatoxin in Milo. So I think uh, we sold them three hundred thousand bushels of Milo in there, and I think we only took about six hundred thousand in the whole North Central Oklahoma uh, combined. And we basically ran all 600,000 bushels across that scale. And we probed half of them. We're clean enough to unload it at the hog farmer. And the other half of them we had to take elsewhere and, and unload elsewhere. So just one of those kind of deals. It was painful. We ended up making money on it at the end. Still came out of it all right. But it was uh, it was pretty painful. All 600 truckloads that went down there and only half of them getting accepted. Wow. Are you seeing a lot of Milo, a lot of shift into Milo again with basis kind of being a little little more positive than corn? Well, it kind of kind of came into the market pretty late. This, and, you know, they didn't come into the market till September, so it was already kind of too late for this year. It'll be interesting to see what Acres do next year. It, it turned out pretty profitable for the guys that did do it this year, but I think Acres were definitely down. We had a a real good corn crop up here this year and filled up a lot of the bins, but 
Uh, Milo was a little better than average. It wasn't near as good as what the, the corn crop was here. But it'll be, like I said, if China hangs around, which they're supposedly not expected to after the first of the year, then we'll see kind of what, what Milo acres do this next year. But they they have a way of playing those games and coming in for the market after all of Milo's been planted too. So they, they got an idea what they're doing. Yeah, it, it seems like for a while, everybody, we just go away from it. You know, nobody plants it. And then all of a sudden, it, you know, they need it. But whoever stays true to the old... The old Milo uh, tends to win, it seems like. <laughs> yep. They can beat the sugarcane aphids and get China in the market. They're doing good. That's true. Chris, as we wrap up our time uh, on your ag empire, what piece of advice do you have for farmers and ranchers as they build their empires? I guess it'd go back to the relationships and the the communication, right? So get out there and be talking to people. Do that as much as you can. Go scroll through your phone and find people you hadn't talked to in a while. Look for people in different parts of the country that you know and just network, talk with them, see what they're seeing in their local area. It's interesting from my position to seeing kind of what basis is doing across the country on the four different commodities I'm trading. It's the same thing with what these farmers are seeing, right? Figure out where the, the drought situation is, where the people are short on corn, long on corn. Um, just be out there communicating with people and, and Use that to uh, your advantage. Absolutely. Well, that's it for today's Your Ag Empire podcast. You can find us across social media at Your Ag Empire. Give us a review wherever you're streaming or visit youragempire.com to visit our show notes. Be good or be good at it.